You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. My name is Kevin Cerilli, and I am the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We begin tonight with the big story, which is the Senate is now taking up the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. And during an Oval Office press briefing on infrastructure today, President Biden took questions on the pandemic relief package that was passed by the House and is now in the Senate. Here's the sound on that from President Biden. We've met, have a number of meetings with Republicans on the coronavirus bill and uh, House, Senate, a combination of both. So we're keeping everybody informed. Back in the Senate, Senator Chuck Schumer, the top Democrat in the Senate, said that the clock is ticking on Congress to pass a new COVID relief bill before the extended federal unemployment benefits expire later this month. Here's what Senator Schumer had to say. No matter how long it takes... The Senate is going to stay in session to finish the bill this week. The American people deserve nothing less. The American people support the plan, including a clear majority of Democrats, independents, Republicans. It seems the only group that opposes the bill are Republicans here in Washington. I'm incredibly grateful to welcome our first guest to tonight's program. It's his first time appearing uh, on this uh, platform, and I hope it will not be the last. He is someone who has had a long career, uh, both in the private sector and private equity, and then uh, serving the country as the United States ambassador to Japan. And now he is a senator from Tennessee. His name is Bill Haggerty. Senator, thank you for joining us. You are a Republican from Tennessee. Uh, you're a member of the Banking Committee. Let's start with the stimulus. Is this an effective use of taxpayer dollars? Kevin, uh, it's great to be on with you today and great to be with your listeners. Um, if you just think about it, there's already been a $4 trillion bipartisan commitment of, of uh, funds for, the, uh, for, to, for stimulus and to combat the pandemic. A trillion of that's not even spent. That's how hard it is to spend this kind of money. Yet the Democrats want to come and load another $1.9 trillion onto the backs of, of, of our children and grandchildren here. Uh, this is going to increase debt per capita in America by, by a, a significant amount. It's already increased by $10,000 per person just in the past year. Uh, you know, we've got, again, a trillion dollars of unallocated funds that haven't been spent. We're talking about adding another $2 trillion to that. Uh, I think what will happen is the same thing that happened back in 2008, 2009, when the Obama stimulus, Obama stimulus program came into place. Uh, we had the most sluggish recovery that we've ever seen. This is this is going to dampen our ability to recover, broadly speaking. So I, I find this fascinating, Senator, when I talk uh, uh, or when I read the reports of how this is being framed 
it's not that Republicans want to spend zero dollars here. What I hear based on my reporting is that people like yourselves would just like to see it more targeted. And so how much money do you think is actually uh, effective in in terms of what we need right now in terms of stimulus? Kevin, you're exactly right. It should be targeted and it should be temporary. Look, this pandemic was given to us courtesy of China. This isn't the fault of anybody that suffered from the disease or certainly any one of the businesses that had to be shut down. But some governors went far beyond what they needed to do in terms of the economic shutdown. This is meant to be a bridge for those businesses and for those employees. This isn't meant to be something that allows the Democrats to come in and put through all their pet projects. So what I would say we need to do is reprogram those dollars that haven't been spent yet, target them in, zero them in to to follow the purpose of the bill. And that's to deal with the pandemic. We should be focused on getting shots in people's arms, getting our kids back to school, and getting our parents back to work. Anything beyond that uh, shouldn't be the subject of this bill and should be out of it. So one of the one of the main questions on people's minds, uh, especially this week, is just the divide that has been going on from the governors across this country, uh, whether it's down in Texas, Governor Abbott, uh, or in Florida, Governor DeSantis. Uh, give us the lay of the land in Tennessee, and when do you think uh, the country might be able to, to put this thing behind us. It was pretty striking to hear President Biden say that every adult American can get a vaccine, a shot in the arm by the end of May. Well, I, I, I love uh, President Biden's optimism in that regard. I want, to so do I. <laughs> I want to congratulate President Trump, though, and the administration that put Operation Warp Speed together so President Biden can make that, plan, that claim. Uh, it was a tremendous, uh, tremendous feat. I don't think it's been rivaled since the moonshot. So Operation Warp Speed has put us in a position today so that President Biden can make that sort of optimistic statement. That is terrific news to me. And again, I'm supportive of vaccines, of vaccine distribution, of testing, things that have to do, again, with putting the pandemic in our rearview mirror. That's the way we come out of this. And it certainly isn't through pet projects for Chuck Schumer and and Nancy Pelosi in their districts. And it's not going to be through this massive expansion of federal funding that has very little to do with the pandemic. In you fact, know, one, of, one of the issues that we've talked about uh, over the past couple of weeks that we've been reporting on is, is this issue of the minimum wage, which obviously is not going to be included uh, this time around in the, in the stimulus. But it, it was interesting to me, Senator uh, Bill Haggerty, a Republican of Tennessee, uh, to report on Senator Cinema and Manchin, two centrist Democrats, who came out against the minimum wage and essentially said, look, while they are in favor of folks in cities where cost of living is, has skyrocketed, getting a, a, pay, a pay increase, in, in rural America and for small businesses on Main Street, that just might be unrealistic. I mean, where is the minimum wage debate issue in, in Tennessee? Well, Kevin, what this does is takes uh, high-cost jurisdictions in blue states and allows them to take away all of our competitive advantage in a state like Tennessee. Uh, our cost of living in rural Tennessee is far lower than it might be in New York or California. They're trying to, quote, level the playing field, and it's going to generate unemployment at a time when we have many small businesses. You think the local restaurants that are trying to get reopened again, they don't have the kind of margins to have a doubling or tripling of, of their uh, labor cost. There's, there's something called the tip credit uh, that, that needs to be accommodated. I think a number of folks in the service industries are worried that the, the, the actual total wages will go down if this uh, type of one-size-fits-all solution is imposed. So Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Kristen Cinema from Arizona, have similar concerns that I do in Tennessee about the negative impact that this would have on the economy. In fact, the Congressional Budget Office has projected that it would be a $1.4 million net loss of jobs 
I'm sorry, 1.4 million net loss of jobs, not dollars. These are human beings' jobs that will be lost as a result of this. You know, I'm going to rip up the script here to, to quote my uh, friend Tom Keen, my mentor here at Bloomberg, because i, I got to be candid, and this isn't a reporting question, but it's, it's – I'm going to say the, the question that I get most from my friends, which is where is the – from your perspective, Senator Bill Haggerty, where is the organization and the – I guess what is informing some of these elected officials' rulemaking process for what percentage of folks can go into a restaurant, whether or not a gym can go open, whether or not a, a school or a nursing home or, uh, in, in this case, a preschool, for example. I mean, what? because to the average person, it, it, it's a really hard to keep up with. It doesn't always make sense, and it, it is increasingly becoming more and more frustrating. Well, it, it certainly doesn't make sense to people of Tennessee, and I think that's felt uh, across the board. This has been very arbitrary. You think about it. You have governors making decisions to keep churches closed, yet liquor stores and abortion clinics can be open. This is not something that's appreciated at all in my home state. Uh, the amount of government overreach has been significant. And, you know, you've, you've got governors that are willing to inform and trust their population. That's a very different perspective from those governors that feel like they need to control the population. I want to talk. And, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was, I was, I was saying I want to move to geopolitics. I mean, just as you're a member of the banking committee, that's a, a committee that obviously we, we cover very closely uh, here. And uh, I was struck by the other week President Biden issuing those executive orders uh, on supply chains and in particular about supply chains and U.S. reliance upon uh, global supply chains, and he's calling for a study. He's instructed members of Congress to come up with uh, uh, some some various nonpartisan proposals. The other senator of your state, uh, Senator Blackburn, and people like Senator Cotton, for example, have, have come out with various proposals that would uh, make the United States less reliant upon China and the supply chain. And, you know, you arguably would have one of the most uh, 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 pressing views of this matter, just given where you uh, served as the ambassador to Japan. What can you tell us about how dangerous it is for the United States to be overly reliant upon any country in our supply chains, in this case, China? Well, I, I think that you, uh, you recognize two leaders in the Senate that have been very good on this issue, and that's Senators Blackburn and Cotton. They get it. Uh, Senator Blackburn came over to join me in Japan uh, she understands very much the issues of supply chain and how much we worked to get more of uh, you know companies that are producing in a product in America to, to actually have their entire supply chain located in America. Tennessee has been very, very, very good about getting that done. The vulnerability, though, I think is something that's been recognized by U.S. companies more and more since President Trump took office. Look, he called out China for what they've been doing in terms of stealing intellectual property, unfairly blocking American companies from competing on Chinese soil, uh, and then heavily subsidizing their own industries to compete unfairly against us. When President Trump put the tariffs in place on China, I think that was an extreme wake-up call to corporate America. And when I served as U.S. ambassador to Japan, there were many companies that realized very quickly that they needed to end their reliance on China, and they were doing everything they could to come back to America. What's the formula for that, though? We've got to make America the most attractive place in the world to invest capital. President Trump started that process by going through a, a heavy deregulatory process, making it easier to do business. And then with the 2017 Act, Tax Act, he took America from having the highest corporate tax rate in the world, at 35%, and brought that tax rate down to something that was far more competitive at 21%. That began a process 
of America's economy taking off. We brought back 500,000 new manufacturing jobs during that period up till now. I'm, I'm worried it's going to go the especially, But especially Senator Bill Haggerty. I mean, this is a week when Senator Elizabeth Warren was on this program and said that there needs to be a wealth tax. So, I mean, so, so how, do, how do you fight for that type of deregulatory policy when literally in the same week you've got Senator Warren proposing that uh, ultra-millionaires should, should be taxed more uh, on their income? And, 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 and I guess I'm, I'm trying to tie it to the geopolitical angle. Well, that, that's my job here in the Senate to fight every day so Elizabeth Warren's programs do not become law. There are very few people like me who have a real business background, and my voice is going to be very important here to make certain that people understand that investment capital comes where the environment attracts it. And if Elizabeth Warren and others want to make America inhospitable to capital or the creation of wealth, that capital will move to other markets. That capital will go elsewhere. People vote with their feet, as do companies. So we have to stay focused on getting more capital investment here. That, that will beget more jobs. That will beget more economic prosperity. That's the way you win is by growing, not by shrinking. Just a couple of more questions on this issue of, of, of Asia in particular and, and the, the, the competitive uh, economic race with China uh, on the technology front. Because we've been also talking about this semiconductor shortage and the reliance upon China uh, and various companies in the Xinjiang province uh, for, for various parts of these semiconductor chips. When you, in your service as ambassador to Japan, uh, did, did the United States what, – what did you glean in terms of the, the economic relationships that the United States should have in Japan, again, in order to make sure that, that China isn't gaining uh, too much reliance or that we're not gaining too much reliance on China in these supply chains? Uh, I think Japan is a critical partner to us. If you think about the size of the Japanese economy, after the United States and China, Japan is the third largest economy in the world. Uh, we have an extremely strong strategic alliance. You, you, may, you, you may know this. Many of your, your listeners may already know this. But we have more, U, more U.S. military stationed in Japan than any place else in the world. Why is that? Because Japan's located in a very tough region. You've got North Korea, Russia, and China right at your doorstep. And as a result, we have an extraordinarily strong strategic relationship with Japan that we need to make stronger. They are our strongest ally in the Asia Pacific, if not in the world. So those are the countries that we need to have stronger, tighter, and closer economic bonds with. And we need to acknowledge the fact that countries like China don't play by the same set of rules. They have a very large market. I'm not advocating that we ignore their marketplace at all. But we need to use strength. We need to, to force them to compete on terms that are fair and reciprocal. Uh, and we need to stand tall when they don't. And in a, in a market like America is the most attractive market in the world. If they want to access our markets, they better start playing by our rules. Senator Bill Haggerty also the transition director for John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, and he brought Major League Soccer to Nashville. What was that like? Did you get Keith Urban in the stands? Uh, you know, we, we, we only had one game before the pandemic hit us. Wow. And, um, you, know, our, 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 you know, that process of bringing Major League Soccer to Nashville was so much fun. Yeah, Nashville, I'm a soccer and, fan. Yeah, great Great state, and, and, and Nashville is a great entertainment city. We already have an, an NFL team in the Titans. We have, you know, if you think about an unlikely success story, that's the NHL team, the Predators in Nashville. Mm. We support that team, you know, like crazy. Kids don't grow up playing hockey at every high school. I can <laughs> tell you that in the South. But Nashville is a great entertainment town. I could see a void in terms of having something that the millennial population would really be attracted to. 
And, and, you know, soccer fits that. My kids grew up playing soccer. They still do. They love it. And you, you look around the, 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 the state, you look around the nation, soccer's growing. Yeah. And so that was an opportunity for us to really make something. And they're fun games. I was they I became fun. a DC United uh, uh, fan because, and I'm, I'm a massive Philadelphia sports fan, but I will say this. I became a DC United soccer fan because of the work that DC Score does in the greater DC region. They do a lot of philanthropy as well. Senator Bill Haggerty, I hope you'll come back on and talk to us, all right? Thank you very much. Great to be on with you, Kevin. Take Thank care. you very much. That's Senator Bill Haggerty. He is a Republican from Tennessee. Rick Davis, our Bloomberg politics contributor, was listening to us. I mean, Rick, uh, what would you think of Senator Bill Haggerty? He is a growing voice in the, in the Republican Party, I would argue, and has a fascinating background. He is a growing uh, voice in the Republican Party, Kevin. I think you're exactly right. His background is really incredible. I mean, a businessman. Successful at virtually everything he's ever done, uh, served a country well in Japan as the ambassador, got a real hard look at uh, the competitiveness that's going on in China. A lot of talk around that, you know, in, uh, in, in, in Washington these days. And, and having him in the United States Senate as a rational voice for, for policy and conservatism is, is huge. I mean, my, my supply-side economics heart was pounding hard as he <laughs> talked about, you know, what we need to be as a competitive nation in a, in a, in a tough-to-compete world. Well, and, and the backstory here, folks, and again, I mean, the, my goal for this program, and, and Rick and I have talked about this all, offline, as have uh, our executive producer, Christine Barada and Jeannie Shanzino, is to bring you, the audience, the voices of the folks who are actually crafting the policies this senator the background he literally every former white house staffer from trump's uh, administration went to his office i mean all of them well, all the the mid-level lower level staff they all went to his office and so that to me as a reporter signals this guy means business in terms of the clout that he wants to have within the republican party you know this i mean you've worked on finding staffers jobs rick davis I mean, what does that signal to you? Yeah, he's building a, a team for the future, right? Exactly what you said, Kevin. I mean, it, it was uh, a smart on his part to assemble people who had experience. They weren't just friends of his that he brought in from the state or anything like that, not a campaign staff that he elevated to Congress. Uh, these are people who know policy. They know the ways around the corridors of power in Washington. And I would suspect that that is going to be uh, a hallmark of his uh, tenure. He will rise in leadership and he will be a very important voice on both international and domestic issues uh, within Congress. And uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, I don't know how good the Nashville uh, soccer club's going to be, but <laughs> I think he's going to make his way into, uh, into national leadership. I could talk point. if it, I, I, Nashville is one of my favorite cities to visit. It, I mean, they've got the best food and that don't, that's don't you think we need a new name for that uh, the nashville soccer club i mean I, that's you know, that's like the washington football, football team. <laughs> i was thinking the same thing i thought you know i did hey what's in a name i didn't want to you know it was his first time on the show rick i wasn't trying okay, i'm trying okay. to get him on back Give him a break. But next time we'll, we'll save that for next time we'll say what was with the name um but uh, you know but seriously from an analytical standpoint we had two interviews this week we had senator elizabeth warren talking about an ultra-millionaire tax that, again, is incredibly popular when you poll it. And then you have someone like Senator Haggerty come on and say the United States needs to attract global investment. Here's the former U.S. ambassador to Japan. Put that in context to us. I mean, Rick, you do, you've, you've been around more than I have and have so much experience from a geopolitical business standpoint. Where is American politics right now when two of the leading voices of each party 
are saying two very different things. Well, first of all, uh, it's all under the shroud of Donald Trump, right? I mean, we, we've, we're so used to his sort of eclectic, and I'm saying that kindly, um, uh, foreign policy, national security approach that we, we lost track of the fact that there is a starkly difference of opinion between Republicans and, Senate and Democrats around how the U.S. should engage globally. The, the, what's unique is not that Elizabeth Warren and, um, and Bill Haggerty have a different view. It's that, that President Biden actually splits the difference quite a bit. Mm. And so neither of those points of view own the White House's point of view. And so, so you got a really unique situation where there will be fights over protectionism and labor rules abroad and, 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 and foreign investment in the United States and, and things like that. And, and this issue you brought up, I think, and you can't talk enough about it, is, is this idea of supply chain um, integrity around the world. Everything mm. is going to be touched by that issue. And well, do you think in that, and I, I, I'm going to steal that from you, supply chain integrity, do you think that countries like Japan, Australia, uh, Taiwan, that those are the countries that are set to benefit as if the United States seeks to diversify uh, its supply chain away from China? Absolutely. And, and we're seeing this right now in real time. Who is going to actually keep us from falling behind on, 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 on computer chips? Mm. Japan and South Korea, our allies. It's not some ally of China that's got us um, in a box. It's, it's we are getting the aid of advanced economies like, like South Korea, like Japan, and like Taiwan, who have the technical wherewithal to help us. And our allies, those economies, are what makes us stronger against the, progress the regressive policies that China has. And coming up in the next half hour, we're going to be joined by Congressman John Garamendi. Uh, he's a Democrat from California. He met with President Biden earlier today, along with another group of bipartisan lawmakers in the Oval Office, uh, to discuss infrastructure. So we're going to talk about the looming fight after this $1.9 trillion stimulus gets through, uh, which is infrastructure. And, and this this... The sense that infrastructure is now being tied, not just from a domestic standpoint of roads and bridges, although it is, but also to the uh, to the geopolitical uh, supply chain integrity, as Rick Davis calls it. Just to get just to get your in the last minute we have before the jump, uh, the the uh, the stimulus. I mean, it, it it's interesting that a lot of these Republican uh, senators and governors they're raising concerns about the stimulus, and yet they're still going to take. The money that that gets passed, Rick. Yeah, I mean, Republicans are doing their jobs; they're slimming it down. <laughs> Democrats have got a, uh, a a bunch of change in their pocket, and they're ready to spend. Everyone's going to take credit for every dollar that comes into their state, including Senator Bill Haggerty. And well, so, that's what I find interesting because that's kind of you know, it's I guess politics. Well, a lot of this money is going directly to people, right? And so you can call it COVID or not, but like it's unemployment assistance, it's checks. There's no reason why, if the government writes a check to a person, they don't get credit for it. And Broadway's reopening. Not the Broadway in Nashville, but Broadway, the Great White Way up in New York City in April. They're going to start having limited shows. Guys, optimism. Guys and gals, optimism. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied none other than, with none other than, Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics uh, contributor. Uh, and Rick, I've been really following this infrastructure story. We've talked about it for the past couple of weeks. But now that the the stimulus is likely going to pass, probably end up on the president's desk, I guess, over the weekend or early next week. But uh, then it's on to infrastructure. And President Biden met with a bipartisan group of lawmakers in the Oval Office today. And I'm really grateful that one of those lawmakers uh, is a good friend of this program. And he joins us now on the telephone line. Uh, Congressman John Garamendi. He is a Democrat from California. Congressman, great to, to have you on. I, I know you can't tell us exactly what was said in the meeting, but maybe just give us a little hint. What, what did you glean from the uh, infrastructure meeting today at the White House? We have a president that wants to build infrastructure for a modern America that can compete with anybody in the world. He was all in. He obviously has been working heavily on getting the rescue package done to crush the virus, get people uh, in their jobs, all of those issues in that. He is, in his mind, moving to the next step, and he's going to build back better, period. He's determined to do it. And he's not talking just about streets and roads and transit systems. He's talking about everything a modern economy needs uh, if we're going to compete with China and other nations around the world and meet the needs of the climate crisis. It was a very, very uh, important uh, meeting. As I look at it, he's setting the stage for a very bold, broad infrastructure program that will address the needs of this nation, Uh, not just this year and not just for the workers now, but for the foundation for economic growth into the future. Well, that's one of the questions I'd have with the stimulus debate is where is the funding for transitioning workers in industries that aren't going to come back in the post-pandemic? I mean, infrastructure jobs, one can make the case, uh, both not just in roads and bridges, but digital, uh, that it could that there could be some jobs there. Did that come up? Did job creation as, as, as a part of infrastructure come up? Uh, absolutely, in two different ways. First of all, just people working, putting in the broadband systems, building the wind turbines, uh, managing those programs as they go into the future, uh, the streets and roads and transit systems. All of that, that's immediate work uh, in, in many different industries. The second point, and he did this his third day in office. The president issued executive orders his third day in office, and he said, your taxpayer money is going to be used to buy American-made products, whether that is cement or wood or uh, computer chips. He was very clear on that. Third day in office, he repeated it today. It's something that uh, I've been working on in legislation for more than a decade now. We called it Make It in America. And so using the infrastructure, the broad infrastructure, broadband, all the pieces, our ports, our waterways, our ships, all of those things, that they be made of American-made products. Well, so you get it two different ways, and, and it is a very big way to rebuild the American economy, to create those jobs. And you've got to team it up with another thing we've all been talking about, and that is you've got to have a workforce that's well-educated. That's part of the rescue package. 
It's part of what we need to do across this nation. It was an exciting meeting because I see a president that wants to move this country forward. I want to ask you, uh, well, first, let's let's play a little bit from what President Biden said at the White House today about infrastructure. Here's the sound on infrastructure from President Biden. Infrastructure and American competitiveness and what we're going to do to make sure we uh, once again lead the world across the board and infrastructure. It not only creates jobs, but it makes us a hell of a lot more competitive around the world if we have the best infrastructure in the world. I want to take a look at a piece of legislation that you've been uh, worked heavily on uh, over the last couple of years. You and I have spoken about it before, uh, and that's the Pharmaceutical Independence Long-Term Readiness Reform Act, uh, which essentially requires Mm -hmm. the Department of Defense to identify the vulnerabilities faced by America's dependence on Chinese pharmaceuticals and to purchase American-made raw materials. It's the last part of of this policy, which I would argue, based on my reporting, has bipartisan support, uh, that could be included in some of these infrastructure conversations. And I can't stress this enough. We have to start thinking of infrastructure beyond just roads and bridges, right? Absolutely true. And and the infrastructure is the supply chain uh, that's so, so critically important. Uh, And that's just one piece of it. The pharmaceuticals, yes, absolutely. We have legislation that is actually in law today as a result of what we did last year. Uh, that uh, sets the stage for the Department of Defense uh, to determine what are the vulnerabilities. Can we, well, what's it been, 25 years since we manufactured penicillin in America? If China really wants to get to us, they cut off our supply of pharmaceuticals, and we got a very sick army. So, yes, that's a piece of it, but it goes beyond that. Legislation is now moving through uh, the Armed Services Committee, uh, through the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, as well as the uh, Commerce Committee here in the House about the supply chain uh, in every conceivable way. And the president just two days ago held up a little uh, computer chip uh, and said, this is part of the problem. We yep. don't make this in America. And the auto industry is shutting down plants because they can't get that little chip uh, to turn on the cars. So, yes, this is seen in every part of the American uh, economy. And so we're going to build back better, not necessarily bigger, but wiser, so that we have, you know, we're not dependent uh, for, on, in some cases, our key competitors for these critical issues. We do know that rare earth, which is critical to all yep. of the electronics industry, there are two mines in America that are usually shut down because they're unable to compete with Chinese government subsidizing the Chinese mines that produce these rare Where are earth these mines? Elements. Where are the mines? Well, one of them's in California, yep. by the bingo. way. Yep. Uh, bingo, out in the Imperial Valley. Uh, it, it has, it's there. It operates from time to time until the Chinese decide they want to flood the market uh, and they shut down. The other one, I understand, is up along the Great Lakes, uh, either I think it's in Minnesota, maybe maybe Wisconsin. I just learned well, of that one the other day. Well, let me bring into this conversation uh, our Bloomberg Politics contributor, Rick Davis. And, and Congressman, earlier we were talking, Rick and I were talking uh, about supply chain integrity. And, and Rick, I mean, it's fascinating just in, in hearing Congressman Garamendi and with his meeting with President Biden earlier today in the Oval Office, and someone like Senator Haggerty, who we interviewed at the top of the show, 
yes, they're worlds apart in terms of the two parties that they're in, but on this supply chain integrity, they agree, Rick. Yeah, and this is a bipartisan concern, right, that uh, we aren't competitive enough uh, with the resources that we have, that we've become maybe too dependent upon other countries, especially China and the the, the, the role they play in developing these technologies. But I think one thing that's also important, and I think the congressman would agree, is that, that we still lead the world in this technology that advances the development of these chips. So working with countries, and we talked about this earlier with Senator Haggerty, uh, uh, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, we've been able to develop those chip manufacturers with technologies that are born in the United States. And the more we can develop that capacity to manufacture here, as Congressman Garamondi pointed out, the, the build and buy America, um, we'll be a more secure nation. Would you agree, Congressman? Absolutely. Absolutely true. And, and it couldn't be said more clear than that. And, and the examples are everywhere, the, the pharmaceuticals. That Legislation that you talked about, Kevin, was introduced with Vicki Halzer, a Republican, who is also on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, and, and we were talking about this one day, and we said we need to do something. Others are also looking at this, economists, manufacturers. We cannot be dependent totally. A good portion of the future supply will come from others around the world. But when you're totally dependent on somebody else, you are literally uh, – at their mercy. And if they don't have mercy, you're in, we're in deep trouble. So yes, it, it is almost everything we do in America, we need to build a resilient supply chain that uh, provides us with the certainty that we can get uh, the material we need or the products or the sub components uh, when they are met, when they're needed. And that may be uh, relying on, on our, uh, key allies for some portion of that, but we have to have the domestic peace. I will tell you, the president spoke to this again today. He has over the last several days. Uh, it is on his mind. He spoke to it in the, in the Oval Office meeting as a part of the infrastructure package. Uh, and when he talks about using American taxpayer dollars to buy American-made goods, he's talking about using those uh, those purchases by the federal government to uh, incubate and to support the domestic yeah. manufacturers. Congressman, how much money is the infrastructure? What's the top line price tag of the infrastructure number? Did he throw out a number? He did not, and I don't think he should. I okay. think we need to build up from the bottom. Uh, well, Kevin, the, the, the number that's banging around. The, the number that's banging around is the American Society of Civil Engineers. These yep. guys know infrastructure. Yep. Uh, they gave us a C minus grade, which actually is up from a D plus in <laughs> 2017. But they're saying 2.59 trillion is wow. the shortfall in spending on infrastructure. So there's a lot of money that's needed. So, Congressman, yeah. how do you pay for it? I mean, I'm sure that came up. I mean, Senator Warren came out with a proposal this uh, week and said she wants to tax ultra millionaires. What are they tossing around? Well, I want to start in a different place. Uh, tossing numbers around, uh, first of all, that $2.9 or whatever the number is, is over multiple years. So start at the bottom. How much money do we need uh, to build uh, uh, the bridges that we need to build over the next, uh, need to repair and build over the next 10 years? How many uh, of the airports need to be uh, brought up to date? 
uh, miles of roads and so on. So you build it from the bottom, piece by piece by piece, add it together. How much of that can be done this year? How much can be done next year in the next five years? So that you, you come at it from the bottom to start at the top, throwing out a number is going to be a problem because people are going to go, oh, my God, we cannot do it. <laughs> well, then we, we got to have something no, no. to talk about, Congressman. we got to have something to talk about on Bloomberg Sound On. Speaking of which, your district— Well, I'm, your... Going to give you, I'm going to give you the individual pieces, and we could talk <laughs> probably about each individual piece for the next, uh, I don't yep. know, several weeks, and then we'll add them all together, and you'll have a number. All right. You know, math was never my forte. That's why I got into journalism. I got to be honest with the audience. Congressman John Garamendi's with us, Democrat from California. You've got to, you represent Napa Valley, a huge, huge parks of uh, Napa Valley. What's your favorite vineyard that's out in Napa Valley? Listen, Kevin, I have been in public office since 1975, <laughs> and I know, honest to God, I, I know do not choose among your constituents as to who is best. They are all perfect. They are the best in the world. And there's no vineyard in France or Italy or Spain that even can begin to match the American California vineyard. All right. Well said. Well said. There you go, like Kevin. Spoken, spoken like a true politician. Let me let me play you for you it. this. I want to I want to get your response to this uh, because my colleague David Weston had the first uh, interview, the tele- first television interview with Agricultural Secretary Tom Vilsack uh, earlier today, uh, and he spoke about agriculture. And I, you know, we I know that's hugely important in your district. Uh, so take a listen to the sound on this from Secretary Vilsack. A great interview uh, from Balance of Power uh, from Secretary Vilsack and David Weston. Here it is understand that the China relationship is is always tenuous. Uh, There are many, many factors and many layers to that relationship that can impact and affect what China decides to do. That's why it's important for us not to put all of our eggs, if you will, in that basket. It's necessary for us to continue to look for new markets and deeper markets. Bingo. I mean, that's that's what Republicans and Democrats are saying, Congressman. Last question for you, because you've been so generous with your time. Well, he's right. Uh, we need to look to the entire world. Years and years ago, I, I looked at California. How does California be competitive in the 21st century? We came up with five things. Best education, best research, best infrastructure, and you have to, uh, you have to think globally. And that's what Bill Sack is saying. You have to think globally. And, and uh, for agriculture, it is a knockdown, hard trade negotiations, because everybody wants to protect their own farmer, and certainly Americans do, too. And so the trade negotiations will be a critical part of that. Uh, China said that Trump said he's going to cut a deal and American agriculture is going to come out well. Well, my rice farmers in California said, oh, yeah, big deal. Two hundred tons of rice. Two hundred wow. tons. I said, you might be you're missing zeros. They said, no, we're not missing zeros. That's all that came of that big uh, talk by, by Trump when he cut this deal with China on opening trade. Um, so you got to be wise about it. Bill Sack is experienced. He knows what he's facing. He knows that we can uh, look at these markets. And it may be small, but it's going to be tough. It'll be tough. But piece by piece, you need to build it. We need to build our domestic uh, markets. And this is one of the things we talk about, American food for American schools. We were buying Chinese peaches for the schools in Sacramento where most of America peaches are canned. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that's infuriating. 
Yeah. Yes. Congressman yeah. Garamendi, I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on um, and uh, making time for us after that really important meeting. Always, and Kevin. I appreciate it very much. That's Congressman John Garamendi, uh, Democrat in California's third congressional district. Rick Davis, you know, I, I was listening to the congressman. I've covered him for years now. And I, I was thinking of, of what you had mentioned about the American Society of Civil Engineers. You know, my dad's an engineer. And I remember I, I had a flashback, as they say. Back when I was in fifth grade, and my dad came home at the dinner table, Rick. And you know what he said to me? He said, Kev, the world is flat. I said, Dad, no, it's not. We're learning about it in school. The world is a sphere. And I'm thinking to myself, is this is my dad a conspiracy theorist? What's going on? He was reading Thomas Friedman's book. Oh, I thought out. maybe he was just talking about paving the entire world <laughs> flat, because that is what civil engineers <laughs> want to do. Well, you know, my, I call him the engineer lovingly. But, uh, but, but seriously, I mean, you—, you you hear about these issues that have just been on the on the back burner for decades, and it, it seems as if in the past year, and maybe it's the pandemic or whatnot, but it seems that there's just been this resurgence. And he used Congressman Garamendi used the word globalism, but I, I feel that in talking to you over the past couple of weeks, you would add an adjective to it and say competitive globalism. That's right. I mean, the world is not full of, uh, I would say, fair actors. And and we heard Secretary Blinken just this week mm. talk about China, that one big uh, standout uh, when it comes to the global economy. And he said sometimes you have to treat them in a competitive fashion, sometimes collaboratively, and sometimes as an adversary. And so this idea that one size has to fit everybody is just got to be uh, transitioned into a new, a much more... Uh, I would say, discerning approach to global affairs. And and so we're not trying to throw everybody's job market up in the air. We're not trying to actually lose our competitiveness by having other countries catch up to us. But we have to know what we're good at. We have to be able to build that capacity here. It has to have the integrity of its uh, technology. Uh, and, and we have to be able to supply good jobs. As you pointed out, Kevin, you know, you were talking to the congressman about are we training people who are no longer going back to their old jobs because they've, they're gone due to COVID. And are we training them properly? Do we have the education system set up so that they can pursue some of these new jobs where building our infrastructure is going to matter? And, and I'm not sure you got the best answer on that. What do you mean? Keep going with that. Well, I, you know, you asked specifically what's in this stimulus bill, what's yeah. in the COVID relief bill, you know, that's going to enhance our ability to retrain workers. 10 million people out of the workforce, and a lot of those jobs may not come back. And so the question is, how do you get them into jobs that we look for in the competitive world, right? What are we doing in technology? What are we doing in energy, new energy capability? And, and there's very little conversation going on around that bill on how we put 10 million people back to work. It a lot of conversation about how we pay for them, yeah. but not a lot of conversation about making them productive. It feels reactionary as opposed to, to forward thinking. So how do, you, how do policymakers, given your career in, in Washington and, and in global business, how do policymakers shift from a reactionary standpoint to being more proactive about these solutions because again and maybe it's not an election year so it's it's you know i guess reactionary by design but 
it it feels that no one is talking about the architecture of this post-pandemic economy in the in where I am in Washington D.C. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's exactly right. It's where you are in Washington D.C. The real ideas and governance don't come from Washington. They come mm. from the states. They come from the localities. When you look at what cities are doing to to try and put people to work, they're improving their at-home education for for uh, people you know who no longer go to college. They're they're creating stronger community yeah. college programs. Uh, the idea that you have to have a higher education to have a job you know, working in American industry is just not the case anymore. And so strengthen your, your higher education, but, but also don't look past the people who want to get in the workforce as soon as possible for either economic reasons or the desire to actually make a difference. I want to touch on some other headlines that we were monitoring today because uh, we did have two really great policy interviews for this, uh, for this hour, and we're, we're super grateful for Senator Haggerty and, of course, Congressman Garamendi. But uh, – this issue from Jay Powell, because he submitted his uh, response to for the question and answers with the Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell. And in response to questions on various topics, Powell returned again and again to the point that the Fed sees labor market as being a long way from its goals, which kind of alludes to what Rick and I were talking about, which means that central bankers are going to be patient as the recovery progresses in the coming months and calls to withdraw stimulus grow louder. And on that same note, the Fed chairman emphasized that the increase in inflation rates that we are likely to see this year will probably be transitory, and Fed officials will therefore be looking through them. He pointed out that inflation expectations remain anchored and added that it's unlikely that the low inflation world we've been living in for several decades will be turned upside down anytime soon. I mean, he kind of, he didn't say this, but that is a disagreement from some of the inflationary concerns, Rick, that we've heard from some prominent people over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, the, the, the fact that we're even talking about inflation is quite unique, Kevin, because we haven't had a conversation about this in, in a decade, right? Yeah. I mean, it's been a deflationary environment most of the time during that period. So the fact that, that the chairman of the Fed has to go out and say, hey, you know, we've got this, we know how to manage it, we're going to control it, um, I, look, you always have to worry about people in Washington who said they can manage something, right? I mean, it's a, you know, that's the first like red flag I've heard this week uh, when the Fed walks out and says, hey, we've got this. Don't worry about it. You know, inflation is going to be managed. Let's go from Jay Powell to Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, says that he is going to add an amendment to raise the minimum wage. Here's the sound on that. I'd love to hear anybody get up here and tell me that they could live on seven and a quarter an hour. They could live on eight bucks an hour. They could live on nine bucks an hour. You can't. But I, I still think that no one is a, saying that you can, but it's just a, they're saying the state should decide it. Right, Rick? What? You're saying that Bernie Sanders is demagoguing an issue? Come on, <laughs> no. Kevin. You know I'm, better than I, that. I, I, you know, I try to. <laughs> but it's, 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 but it's, it's, it's what you, Bill Haggerty said. Right? It's what Bill I thought Haggerty he said. was very articulate. Yeah. He's like, you know, yeah. the people in my state. You know, in some of the more rural areas, they're working, they're making a living, but they don't need to earn what someone in New York City earns. So, like, let New York City set its minimum wage and let Tennessee set its minimum wage. But I will why do defend, we have one national wage? Right? I will say, I mean, you, you talk to, to business advocacy groups and the people like Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, they do forecast uh, to the business community what the megaphone of the progressive movement is going to do. And then you see Walmart come out and raise minimum wage. And, and so, I mean, it, it, you know, that reverberation and echo from, from Bernie Sanders microphone, 
is definitely heard by by uh, the business community. And then the final story that I was monitoring today, just thirdly, is that uh, Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, faces a probe by a hard-charging New York Attorney General seen as a rival for the job, Letitia James. She is the state's Attorney General who is going to be potentially governor one day of New York. A fascinating story unfolding, continuing to unfold in New York. February is Women's History Month, and we are spotlighting uh, notable achievements by women throughout America's history. And here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 1933, Frances Perkins is sworn in as U.S. Secretary of Labor, making her the first female member of a U.S. presidential cabinet. She served under President Franklin Roosevelt. Prior to the White House, Perkins tirelessly fought for workers' rights and safety in various New York City and state agencies. She was one of two cabinet members who served for the entirety of the Roosevelt administration. Perkins played an active role in developing and enacting a wide range of New Deal programs, including the Social Security Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act. She also pushed for a minimum wage, a maximum work week, and a limit on employment of children under 16. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Uh, Rick, did you hear my Warren interview? Because I brought up McCain on Glass-Steagall. Yes, I, I heard it, and I'm so happy that she reacted with a positive fashion. <laughs> See, I did that for you, Rick. I'm You're learning from Rick Davis. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.